Well, good morning. Let me be amongst the first to wish you happy Groundhog Day, which raises the question, do you believe in the sign of the groundhog? Do you believe in the sign of the groundhog? Um, Several things you have to ask. You have to ask yourself, what is the sign? What does it mean? I can never remember what happens if he sees his shadow. What does the sign mean? And then, in light of the sign, what is it that I'm supposed to do? But perhaps more importantly, is the sign true? Should you believe in the sign of the groundhog? Let me uh, ask a similar question about another sign. How about this one? The end is near. What do you think about signs of the end of time, the end of the age, the return of Christ? Are they true? Do you recognize them? Do you know what they mean? What should you do in response to them? There's a lot of options out there. Here's one. Uh, Doomsday Preppers. It's a show. Some of you know that. If you watch it regularly... Don't admit it. We're not about that here, okay? Um, What if they're right? Should we be building bunkers? Is this supposed to be like a perennial Y2K on steroids while we store up things for the dark days that are ahead? Now, you could always get your end times theology. The big word is eschatology, if you hear somebody talk about eschatology, from the internet. It's full of uh, sites. This might be a great site. I have no idea. I don't know who this guy is or anything, but I love the imagery of it. I thought it represented well what goes on on the internet in terms of, in terms of uh, eschatology. I think we can do better than the internet. We have to do better than the internet. And if you open up your Bibles to Matthew 24, Jesus in Matthew 24 is teaching on the end of the age. Now, D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, writes of our text that few chapters of the Bible have called forth more disagreement among interpreters than Matthew 24. So before we even open it up, let's just pause and pray and ask for God's mercy and discernment as we look at it together. Would you bow with me? Father, be kind to us. We are a people in need of your Spirit's instruction. Um, So we ask for that now. We ask for him to guide us into truth that we might live the full life that you have for us that brings you honor. Uh, May my words, Lord, be constrained and guided by your Spirit. And give us ears to hear and uh, help us be quick to obey that which you're bringing to us today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in your Bibles, Jesus is only a couple of pages from the cross, and in the Gospel of Matthew, He's only a couple of days from it as He's teaching. Uh, He closed out, you remember last week, Matthew 23 with all these terrible woes against the Bible scholars of the day. It was His last public teaching. Now His teaching, from this point on, centers on His disciples. And uh, that's a, uh, it's a good reminder for the topic that we're going to look at. 
starting in Matthew 24, verse 1. And I may need your help advancing that slide. I think I'm stuck. There we go. Thank you. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these do not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be broken down. Jesus is predicting a future event here. He is prophesying in a sense. He's foretelling this great majestic temple is going to be torn down as a great and terrible act of judgment. Now, Jesus has been hinting about this. Remember, He cleansed the temple. And then, like I said, in the last chapter, He had all these pronouncements of judgment against the religious leaders in the temple system. And He ended with a lament over Jerusalem, the city uh, where the temple was housed. And Jesus' warning, His judgment is communicated on the temple, not only by His words, but by His posture. He turns His back on the temple And he walks away. And um, his disciples um, don't get it. Okay, It's almost like they want him to reconsider. They stop him and they say, um, you see the beautiful buildings? In Mark's account of this, they say, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. It's almost like they don't want Jesus to give up on the temple. But because Jesus had said there's one greater than the temple here, And because they have rejected him, um, the temple is going to be destroyed. And uh, the temple, here's a a representation of it. And you know, evidently I've died. You're going to have to advance my slides for me there. I'll just pretend like I advance it. I'll do a dramatic motion and you can. um, This is a model of the temple. Um, It was, according to one, one historian, Uh, The most awesome, one of the most awesome buildings um, in the day, uh, in the ancient world. Here's another another picture of it. Um, It was the center of political, spiritual, and economic life for the Jewish people. It was inconceivable in their mind. You see how huge it is. It's inconceivable in their mind that this building could be destroyed. It would be like. if you were to flatten the White House, and you've repossessed my pointer, okay. Um, it'd be like if you flattened the White House and the Capitol Building and the National Cathedral and the Treasury Building all at once. Imagine the wall, the mall in Washington just destroyed. That's what they think of when Jesus says, not one stone's going to remain on, on another. Um, and so you can imagine, this raises questions for the disciples. And let's see. Ah, thank you. And uh, let's see where we are. Okay. Jesus goes out and he sits on the Mount of Olives in verse 3. And the disciples came to him privately. So this is a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And they say, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? They have two questions, two main questions that are all tangled up together in their mind. First one, when will these things be? They're thinking about the destruction of the temple Jesus just predicted. When is that going to happen? 
Secondly, what's going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And they go together in their minds. Okay? Now, Jesus' answer is of the utmost importance, and it is not easy to sort out. Let me show you how I spent my week. I spent my week with uh, Dr. Edwards and Dr. Carson and, of course, Dr. Bruner and Dr. Osborne and Dr. Carson again and Matt Woodley and Dr. Hagner and Dr. Blomberg and some guys online uh, like uh, Dr. Storms and one of my favorite scholars, Dr. Merkel, okay? And I want you to know, having, I've spent all week immersed in conversation with these guys. They don't agree on what we're about to study. Um, but there are some main areas of essential agreement throughout most of them that are going to be the focus of what we're thinking about today and it really has to do with what Jesus' primary concern is in teaching his disciples about these things. And that is that we learn how to live ready. That's his concern. You'll see he's, that's his primary concern. Here's Jesus' answer to their questions. There are two questions. Jesus answered them. See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So Jesus starts... It seems by addressing the disciples' second question first. Okay. What are the signs of the end of the age? So Jesus says, lots of false Christs. Okay. A lot of people saying they are me. Lots of rumors about wars, wars and rumors about wars. Maybe some, some of those rumors spread by those false Christs. Lots of natural disasters, famines earthquakes in a variety of places, but notice what Jesus says about those things, okay? They are not signs of the nearness of the end. They're not, okay? He says that they must happen, and it gives you a sense that all these things are under God's sovereign control. They're all part of his unfolding plan. Even wars, even earthquakes, they're all under his, his control. They must unfold as they are. But twice, he says, the end is not yet. Okay? They're just the beginning of the birth pains. And so Jesus is comparing his, his coming to childbirth. And, and if you're using that model, essentially he's saying these kinds of things, they're the Braxton Hicks contractions of the end times. Ladies, you, you're tracking with me, you know what I mean? Braxton Hicks contractions, they let you know that you're pregnant, but you got a long way to go, okay? Um, that's what Jesus says these things are like. Um, his concern 
is not that we can chart the latest conflict with Israel on our prophecy apps on our iPhone, okay? I'm sure they have them. Don't get them, okay? (laughs) Jesus' concern is that these things don't alarm us, okay? That we are not fearful. We're not worried. We are not led astray, okay? Don't be alarmed, he says. So, just like the husband doesn't take his wife to the emergency room when she has Braxton Hicks, we don't get all worked up over these kinds of signs that Jesus is talking about here. Um, I ran across a uh, website this week that listed signs of the end times. There were 26 signs um, alongside signs like lots of stress and lots of travel. Those are both signs of the end times, according to this website. Uh, were things like wars and famines, and they cited this passage. It's almost the opposite of what Jesus is saying. These things do point towards that. They must unfold, but they are not signs of the imminency of of Christ's coming. His great concern is don't be led astray or be alarmed, especially by reports of wars, famines, and earthquakes and such. So, In order not to be led astray, you have to know what the Bible says, which means you have to be reading your Bible, and you can't skip these parts, okay? Can't skip Matthew 24 and 25. Can't just say, the book of Revelation is too bizarre, I don't get it. You have to be familiar with these things. That's how you align yourself and protect yourself according to Jesus' great concern so far, that you are not able to to be led astray. Um, Okay, verse 9. Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. It seems like Jesus is continuing to describe those earlier birth pains here. Um, They're moving in the direction of his return, it seems. Ladies, you might think these are early stage one contractions, okay? Not much dilation going on. If your husband takes you to the hospital, they're going to send you back home. That's what this stuff is about. But be clear. Jesus is very clear. The people of Christ will suffer. Suffering is in our, our world. It's in our future. Because we follow Christ, we, are, we do not have an exemption from that. Horrific suffering awaits those who follow Him. Tribulation, He says, even death, hated by all nations. It's happening in our day. It's happened throughout history. Uh, it's widely cited that the 20th century had more Christian martyrs than did the first 19 centuries all put together. Um, This persecution seems to come both from without the church, the nations, and from within the church as we betray and hate one another, it says. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. This has been the case throughout history. Back um, not long after this was written in AD 64 when Nero uh, of Rome was persecuting uh, the believers terribly there, a fellow named Tacitus wrote that those who confessed 
they were Christians, were first arrested. And then, on their disclosures, many Christians were further arrested. When suffering comes, many, many will fall away. It sounds as though only a few will remain. And what Jesus says next is very, very important. Listen to what He says as a result of this. He says, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Jesus' great concern is not just that we know there's a tribulation that lies in our future, that there's suffering that is coming, and not just how it relates to the end, knowing about all of those things. His great concern is how when we face suffering for following Jesus, which he predicts here, how will we respond? How will it affect us? Suffering is coming, Jesus says, and it will cause the love of many to grow cold. This is his great concern, that our love does not grow cold. Of course, that involves our love for God. But in particular, he seems to be concerned about our love for one another. Um, he's just talked about that we will fall away and will betray and will hate one another uh, as a representation of our love for one another growing cold. This is what Jesus is calling us in the next verse to endure in. It says, um, the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures in love, who keeps loving, who doesn't give in to betrayal and hating of his brothers and sisters in Christ, they will be saved. This is what Jesus is calling us to endure in. This, according to Jesus in John 13, is the very mark of a Christian. This is what marks a Christian. Jesus says in verse 34 and 35 of John 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, in verse 35, it says, All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, this is the mark of a true Christian. Does this mark you? Do you love God's people and the church? People who persevere in this great mark of love, first for God, then for their neighbor, will be saved, Jesus says. They'll be delivered ultimately from this sin-wrecked world and all its sorrow. And then he says, um, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The connections here are really interesting. It starts with future suffering. And that pressures many so that their love grows cold as their suffering exposes their unbelief and selfishness. Those who persevere in love to the end show themselves to be truly saved. And as the persecution scatters them, much like the first century, they in love bear the gospel as they go to many nations, to all nations. And if you look back at verse 9, 
They're going to take the love of Christ to the very nations that hate them. The point here that the gospel is going to be proclaimed throughout all nations and then the end will come. The main point Jesus is making is not that that's a a sign that needs to be fulfilled before he can come, come back. His main point here, that's worthy of discussion and thinking about, but the main point here is how are we to respond to suffering and persecution that will inevitably come our way and what will be the redemptive result of that if we persevere in love? It is the spread of the gospel to all nations. So the great teaching of Jesus about the end times is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is the most important thing. Love those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. Strengthen that love now. When the little wrongs come now, forgive and love. Don't hold grudges. Bless those who curse you. Bless those. Pray for those who do you wrong. Don't be numbered amongst those who will one day hate and betray. Many, it says, will fall away and yield to hate. Don't let it be you. Make sure that you are drinking of the love of God in such a way that it makes you a better lover. Now, after wading through all these commentaries and several others this this week in preparation for this teaching, um, I'm convinced this is the centerpiece of Jesus' concern, that our love will not grow cold. Um, Persevere in loving one another, even loving enemies. And then, he says, the end will come, the mission will be complete as that loving message spreads to all nations. Now, believe it or not, the next section gets trickier, okay? says in uh, verse 15, and I think I'm stuck again, so if you could advance that for me. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and then Matthew inserts, let the reader understand. Thank you, Matthew. Very helpful. Dad, appreciate that little insight that you gave me there. Uh, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those... (laughs) You know, I think we're having a contest now. I think I have control again. There we go. For those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So now it seems like Jesus is addressing their first question. When will these things be? When will the temple of Jerusalem be destroyed? Um, the prediction that Jesus had just made. And in answer to that question, he cites a prophecy from the book of Daniel about the abomination of desolation. 
the abomination that desecrates. Here's, here's one, it's several times in Daniel. Here's one of those times from chapter 11. It speaks of this abomination saying, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. And an abomination <clears throat> is something before God that is disgusting and revolting and idolatrous. And it desecrates something sacred here. In this case, being the temple, Daniel says. In Daniel's case, this prophecy made hundreds of years before found its nearest fulfillment about 168 B.C. with a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. And Sam Storms describes it this way. He says, in 168 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes slaughtered 40,000 Jews and plundered their temple. He and remember, this is a Jewish temple. He sacrificed a pig on the altar of burnt offering, sprinkled broth from the unclean flesh all over the holy grounds as an act of deliberate defilement. He then erected an image of Zeus above the altar. It was, he says, a sacrilege of indescribable proportions, indelibly imprinted on the minds of the Jews in Jesus' day. So, Daniel predicts that this abomination that desecrates is going to happen, and it sees its first fulfillment in Antiochus Epiphany, a couple hundred years before Jesus. Well, Jesus now is renewing that prediction, that it's going to happen again. And this prediction um, is related to the destruction of the temple. And then you've got very specific instructions for people in a specific location in Judea who are to flee when they observe this great desecration of the temple happening. And Jesus is especially concerned with the least of these, with women who are pregnant, who are nursing infants, and He urges prayer for mercy in those days. You don't even have time to pack, he says. shouldn't even go back in and try to get your coat. It's going to be that pressing when it happens. Now, remember the setting. Okay? Jesus just left the temple, and he's talking about when the temple's going to be destroyed. Jesus makes his prediction somewhere around, let's say, A.D. 33, the mid-30s there somewhere. And he's not predicting just his return, but he's talking about the destruction of the temple, which actually happened about 40 years later in A.D. 70, the Jerusalem temple was destroyed by Rome. I mean, almost like it says here, no stone was left um, on top of another. It was absolutely destroyed. Sam Storms points out how well Jesus' predictions fit with what actually happened at the siege of Jerusalem. This is what he says. The war that broke out in 66 AD between Rome and the Jewish people was an intensified continuation of hostilities that had been brewing for years. Jerusalem, the last Jewish stronghold, was the focus of Rome's most brutal rage. Multitudes of thieves, zealots, and murderers had flocked into the city seeking refuge. The city was without law and order. Chaos and anarchy reigned. The city divided into warring factions who took turns attacking each other. This is inside the city. This is not even with Rome. In one incident, more than 12,000 of the city's nobles and leading citizens 
were tortured and killed by the zealots. Those who tried to escape had their throats slit and their bodies were left to rot in the streets. Burial became an impossibility. Huge piles of cadavers filled the streets or were thrown from the city's walls. People not only sold their homes, but their children as well in order to obtain food. Regularly, people ate from the public sewers, cattle and pigeon dung, leather shields, hay, clothing, and things that scavenger dogs would dare not to touch. Unbelievable forms of torture were inflicted on those suspected of hiding food. All this is going on while Rome has the city surrounded and under siege. When the city falls, the city of Jerusalem, he says, while it was still burning, the soldiers brought their legionary standards into the temple precincts. This should sound familiar. They're bringing, the pagan soldiers are bringing into the temple precincts They're offering sacrifices, they're Roman sacrifices on the altar in Jerusalem in the temple once again, declaring Titus, Emperor Titus, to be victor. The idolatrous idolatrous representation of Caesar and the Roman eagle on the standards would have constituted the worst imaginable blasphemy to the Jewish people. So Jesus here is predicting and answering their second question quite literally, it seems. When would the temple be destroyed? When you see this kind of abomination happening again. Now, scholars really start to wrestle at this point in time, as best I can tell. Some of them say what Jesus is describing in this passage, when he talks about the destruction of the temple, it's all about the past. Every bit of it was fulfilled in that destruction in 70 AD. There's some other scholars that said, this has nothing to do with 70 AD, it's all going to be in the future when Jesus comes back at that great judgment. Um, Most scholars tend to land in the middle of that. They see language that talks about both judgments, that judgment in 70 AD on the temple and a future one that's yet to come. Again, one of my favorite scholars, uh, Ben Merkel, says... Is Jesus referring to the time of the temples and Jerusalem's destruction, or is he referring to the end time? Most likely the answer is both, he says. I agree with Dr. Merkel okay, on that one. Here's, here's how I understand it. Think of it this way. A couple years ago, I went to China. And while I was in China, I visited one of our families, uh, Jason and Cassie. They are in the world's largest city, a city of by some counts, over, over 30 million people live in this city. And while we were there, they took us to this place where we got to go to a uh, scale model of their city. And as you can see, there's actually Greg Bowers and Nicole, and we're on an observation platform looking out at this amazing scale model of this massive, massive city. Now, Jason would talk to us and he would point things out where their apartment was, where the campuses were. He was sharing Christ with students were, where different features were. And sometimes he'd point at the model and sometimes he'd be pointing out there at the reality behind the model. And I think um, Jesus is doing something like that. The model is one thing. The great city itself is another. There's general correspondence between the two. But there are some details on the model that are not an exact fit to the reality. 
there's a legend on the model with a north arrow. There's not one in the city. Okay? But in the city, there's traffic and people and birds that are not reflected in the model. So it's a general correspondence between what happened historically and what is yet to happen when Jesus teaches. Um, the destruction of Jerusalem literally in AD 70 is kind of a scale model of a greater ultimate reality that stands behind it, that it represents and points to. Jesus is going to talk about that final judgment, the ultimate judgment, on the very next page of your Bible. In chapter 25, he's going to say, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and before Him will be gathered all the nations and He'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So Jesus has on His mind as He's teaching this, we can see not just the destruction of the temple, but also something greater, a greater judgment that's yet to come. Now, I don't think that this, the accounts here is all future. Some people would say it doesn't have anything to do with the past. And the correspondence and the fact that the question is about the actual destruction of Jerusalem makes me think that it does correspond to 70 A.D. But I don't think it's all in the past either. There's language here that's bigger than what happened in Jerusalem. For instance, in verse 21, where it says, Then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And even though the siege of Jerusalem was horrible, if you read of it, it's one of the worst things I've ever read about. I'm not sure that we could say nothing worse has happened in the remainder or ever would happen in all of history. I think it's, it's thinking about and pointing to an even greater judgment. It also seems to me that this prophecy of the abomination of desolation, which found partial fulfillment after Daniel in 168 B.C., has now found also partial fulfillment from Jesus' prediction in 70 A.D., I think it has a yet future fulfillment that's even greater. Paul seizes on this, I think, and talks about it in 2 Thessalonians 2, where he says, let no one deceive you in any way. Again, his concern is Jesus' concern. He's writing about the end of time as well. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Very similar imagery, right? The desecration of the temple. Proclaiming himself to be God. In addition, you've got language that talks about the elect in this passage. It seems to be bigger than just the believers in Jerusalem, but probably the, the elect throughout all, all of the world, and perhaps even throughout all of time. So what happens in Jerusalem is not an exact fit. It's a scale model. And Dale Bruner helped me as he says, he says, we most profitably read Matthew's sermon when we see both Jerusalem's end and Jesus' coming in most text, not always being sure which of the two events Jesus meant. But we may be sure that in every verse, Jesus wants to prepare future disciples, which is who we are, for Jesus' coming with the renewal of this world. So there's going to be great suffering, great tribulation. There's going to be betrayal amongst the people of God and hatred by those we love 
That will be our future. So Jesus is telling us, live ready. Don't be led astray. Don't be worked up to alarm and frenzy by current events. Don't, most of all, don't let your love grow cold. Know that God will not bring a suffering upon you that you cannot bear. He will temper it for His elect. Then Jesus says, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there He is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Jesus is warning us. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Again, Jesus' main concern, it's not that we're tracking all the signs, all the current events, but it's that we're not led astray by a false teacher who would have us obsess about errant signs and even perform great signs himself. So, next to your personal reading of the Bible, I know of nothing more helpful than good Bible and theology instruction from people that you know and you trust their life and their doctrine. That is indispensable to honor Jesus' great concern that you not be led astray in these matters. Because if you start poking around on the internet, there's all kinds of goofy nonsense out there by goofy people. You want to be taught the Bible by people whose lives you know and respect. And so, coincidentally, just across the street, right now going on, there's a class called Theology for Everyday Believers taught by amazing teachers. Guys like Mark Lederbach, who volunteered in the first service to answer any question that you had about this topic that I didn't answer. Okay? Raised his hand, stood up and said, I, I know it all. Now, Mark never said that. But, <laughs> but you can ask Mark all the hard questions about the end times. He loves that stuff. <laughs> um, but we offer that class taught by amazing teachers. We offer a class in the book of James, taught by Jake Mason, some other great teachers. There's a class in evangelism right now, how you talk to people about your faith, taught by Rob Craig going on. And you ought to be on those classes like a dog on a bone so that you can honor Jesus' concern, right? And not be led astray. Beware of those who say they have seen a secret coming of Jesus. It's not going to be a secret when he comes. Look at what he says next. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It's not that there are no, no signs to be aware of. Okay? Jesus says the, these are birth pains, the beginnings of them. He wants us to be mindful of these things. Here's the good news, though. You cannot miss the coming of Jesus. You will not be busy at work, out of town on some project, and come back and say, oh, man, Jesus came while I was... It's not going to happen. Jesus says it's not secret. 
everybody's going to know. As lightning is visible from the east to the west, as sure as where you see vultures circling, there's, a, there's something dead, you're going to know. You cannot miss the coming of Christ. That's why the emphasis here is not on decoding signs, but on living ready. As we'll see next week, the end is going to come when you don't expect it. It's going to be a surprise. Dale Bruner, I love the way he says this. He says, Jesus' sermon does not intend to create apocalyptic seers, but to create spiritual long-distance runners. Not to create apocalyptic seers, but to create spiritual long-distance runners. Jesus wants our minds to be ready so we're not led astray. We're not alarmed by what's going on. He wants our hearts to be ready, full of the love of God and love of neighbor and even love of enemy. And here's the last few verses we'll look at today. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all all the tribes of the earth will mourn And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great, with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now, these signs in heaven, in the heavens, they underscore what Jesus just taught about the lightning the unmissability of his coming. It's going to be as obvious as if the stars fell out of the sky. Um, The question comes up, will that literally happen? Will stars really fall out of the sky? And uh, it's, it's helpful to know that when you read the Old Testament prophets, they use this kind of symbolism, uh, this kind of language symbolically. So that when a regime or a nation falls and there's great spiritual or political upheaval and change, they'll talk about it in terms of cosmological language like this. They'll, they'll say about um, stars falling out of the sky as regimes change and stuff like that. So they seem to, it seems to be primarily predicting that there's going to be huge upheaval spiritually, politically, economically. But I don't think that necessarily means that there won't be any literal cosmological things happen. God can do that. Um, And we've seen him do it in the scriptures. Case in point, a couple pages in your Bible, Matthew 27, verse 45, Jesus is on the cross, right? And from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. I think that's an actual, literal Somehow, cosmological event that happened that brought darkness to the land of Israel. So, the fact that these these symbolic language pictures great spiritual and political turmoil and upheaval and change doesn't mean that there won't be signs that necessarily accompany it. And the Son of Man, it says, will gather His elect from the four winds. That's how our passage ends. It raises the question, who are these elect? More personal question, am I among them? 
And I would say, as simple as I can put it, the elect are those chosen by God to believe and to be changed by that belief. Those who have been chosen by God in love and they've been changed by that loving choice. They now live to serve the one that they so love. When they suffer increasingly, they are learning how to love people even when they suffer, even when they're wronged. Those are the marks of those who are the elect. They are chosen to believe and that belief changes them. Would that describe you? Do you believe in the love of Christ for you? And is that love changing you and making you more loving? You know, in this teaching, there's several really encouraging things taught to us about the elect that Jesus uses this language. In verse 22, it talks about the elect being protected in those days. In those days, if they'd not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. God is going to protect us. Those He has chosen, those who's chosen and are being changed by our faith, He's going to protect us. He's going to cut short the suffering so that our faith is protected. Um, the elect are secure. They're kept secure by God. In just a couple of verses, Jesus says, False Christ, false prophets will arise, perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. The idea behind that, I think, is they're going to try to lead astray, but not the elect. They're not going to be able to. They're going to be kept secure by God in the midst of all this false teaching and stuff that comes along. And then perhaps most encouraging He's going to send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they're going to gather to him his elect from the, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. We will be gathered to be with our king, our good and mighty king, Jesus. That's the great hope of the elect. I love the way um, Edward said it in his commentary. He says, it's equally important to note what this glorious vision of the future does not affirm. There's no mention of a millennium, no new Jerusalem, no rebuilt temple, no restoration of Israel or the state of Israel, no battle of Armageddon, no hints how and when Christ will return. About all these things, the text is silent. All these incidentals yield to the preeminent truth of the power and glory of Jesus' future coming and the promise that His elect will be gathered to Him. This preview of the future, he says, ought not lure us to calculate when Christ will return, nor to fear what will happen, but to know that He will come to claim His own. His coming is His promise, and the gathering of believers to Him is our hope. That's our great hope. That having been granted faith and seeing God change us by that faith, that one day He will come and He is coming for us. That we are the beloved of Christ that He is returning for. So Jesus' great concern is that we would not be led astray, that we would not be unduly alarmed by current events, and especially that our love would not grow cold. And so what we want to do at the close of our service is one of the great 
love-protecting acts Jesus gave to the church. We want to gather at the Lord's table and we want to remember the, the width and breadth and height and depth of the love of Christ for us. We just want to reflect and celebrate and let the love of God come to us and let it affect us as we remember Christ at this table together. And we are urged to do this until He comes, and that it would be a protection of our love in the days when we are tempted to let it grow cold. So we remember together as God's people, on the night on which He was betrayed, Jesus took bread and He broke it and He said, this is my body, it's broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. And after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup contains the new covenant of my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. Would you bow with me in prayer, please?